0: R.G. Lozada here. If you like what you're hearing, please donate to us. Visit radioproject.org, and there you can find a donate button. Also, rate us on iTunes. It totally helps other listeners find us. Thank you so much, and now, here's the show. On the next Making Contact.
1: If there were no Black Lives Matter, there would be no Women's March. We've set the foundation, and the idea that this new round of feminism is coming out of the Women's March is just false because we are feminists and Black Lives Matter. And it's largely been led by black women and queer people and trans people. And so this idea that white women get to own feminism, I think is super disturbing. Uh, But what it's important for me in in these moments is to not let the hijack continue. That we get to remind people the story and what's been happening and why Black Lives Matter is a feminist movement. And actually, the resistance didn't start on November 6, when white women decided to wake up.
0: I'm Anita Johnson. Since the election of Donald Trump, there have been significant efforts to racially profile activists and aggressively prosecute protesters. In 2017, nearly 20 states proposed bills that would restrict people's rights to protest. The proposed laws would increase the penalties for protesting in large groups and ban individuals from wearing masks during demonstrations. The American Civil Liberties Union said, More than 30 separate anti-protest bills have been introduced in an unprecedented level of hostility towards protesters in the 21st century. Today on Making Contact, we hear from Patrisse Kahn cullors the co-founder of Black Lives Matter and the author of the new book, When They Call You a Terrorist, A Black Lives Matter Memoir. In this conversation, hosted by longtime organizer Kat Brooks, we hear Patrice Culler's insights on black liberation, police terrorism, and the criminalization of activism in America as shaped by an existing political landscape that seeks to neutralize the movement, criminalize activists of color, and shield law enforcement from public scrutiny.
1: So I want to read a bit for y'all from this Beautiful, beautiful book. And um, and then we'll sit and chat it up with my sister, Kat. We are Stardust. I write to keep in contact with our ancestors and to spread truth to people, Sonia Sanchez. Days after the election of 2016, Asha sent me a link to a talk by astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We have to have hope," she says to me across 3,000 miles. She in Brooklyn, me in Los Angeles. We listen together as Dr. DeGrassi Tyson explains that the very atoms and molecules in our bodies are traceable to the crucibles and centers of stars that once upon a time exploded into gas clouds, and those gas clouds formed other stars, and those stars possess the divine right mix of properties needed to create not only planets including our own, but also people, including us, me and her. He is saying that not only are we in the universe, but that the universe is in us. He is saying that we, human beings, are literally made out of stardust. And I know when I hear this, and I know when I hear him say this, that he is telling the truth because I have seen it since I was a child. The magic, the stardust we are, and the lives of the people I come from. I watched it in the labor of my mother, a Jehovah's Witness and a woman who worked two and sometimes three jobs at a time, keeping other people's children, working the reception desks at gyms, telemarketing, doing anything and everything for 16 hours a day, the whole of my childhood and the Van Nuys Barrio where we lived. My mother, cacao brown and smooth, disowned by her family for the children she had as a very young and unmarried woman. My mother never giving up despite never making a living wage. I saw it in the thin brown face of my father, a boy out of Cajun country, a wounded healer whose addictions were born of a world that did not love him and told him so not once but constantly. My father who always came back, who never stopped trying to be a better version of himself, there were no mirrors for. And I knew it because I am the 13th generation progeny of a people who survived the holes of slave ships, survived the chains, the whips, the months laying in their own and the human beings legislated as not human beings who watched their names, their languages, their goddesses and gods, the arc of their dances and beats of their songs, the majesty of their dreams, their very family snatched up and stolen. Disassembled and discarded, and despite this, built language and honored God and created movement and upheld love. What could they be but stardust, these people who refused to die, who refused to accept the idea that their lives did not matter, that their children's lives did not matter? Ashe.
2: When was the first time you were called a terrorist?
1: Um, (laughs) uh, The first time I'm called a terrorist is definitely somewhere in 2015 or 2016. Um, I I wanna say it was before the Dallas shootings um, that there were mumbling of us being terrorists, Black Lives Matter, both the leadership but also the organization being a terrorist organization. But it was definitely the, um, the Dallas shootings in which uh, not just right-wing pundits but elected officials and appointed officials were calling us terrorists. Um, and I think it was a moment where I saw my face and, and folks who I love faces um, uh, and the headlines of Bill O'Reilly and the headlines of Breitbart News. Yes, I think that was the first time.
2: You mentioned Texas, and specifically you're talking about Micah Johnson, Mm -hmm. um, who at a a Black Lives Matter protest um, ended up killing five police officers, Mm -hmm. who then responded by sending a robot to blow him up. Mm -hmm. When you woke up that morning and that was on the news, Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I had just had my child just a few months before uh, I think I was three or four months out, and I remember first, before I got the news, because I was trying to stay away from the news and social media. I was supposed to be on maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bunch of text messages, and they were like, Did you see what happened in Dallas? Like, are you, like, we have to get an emergency phone call. And um, as I looked and, and, uh, you know, for, for folks of color, the first question we always ask about a shooter is what race is he? Because it will determine the outcome um, of what happens to that person, but also what happens to us. And so the moment they said the shooter was black, I was like, okay, like they're about to go after us. And that's exactly what happened. And we spent the next 48 hours to 72 hours trying to navigate um, how to have a conversation about um, the state's need to blame any black person's behavior, especially if it was against law enforcement on Black Lives Matter.
2: And there's this thing that happens, I mean, glad, we joke about it though, uh, in less serious situations, right? That when something happens, like if you're black, you're praying, you're brown, you're praying, right? Mm-hmm. And praying that it's somebody else. Mm-hmm. But then there's this dynamic that happens with people of color. Mm within certain pockets of people of color, within this group trots themselves out and apologizes, yeah. right, for whatever that person has done on behalf of the race of people. But when Dylan Roof, mm-hmm. right, murdered those folks, you, you never see white people trot people out and apologize for the brutality totally. um, that they exercise on other people.
1: Yes. <laughs> You are right, Kat. Uh, <laughs> I think um, you know it was such an interesting moment and for us, if the audience remembers, this was like the height of a resurgence of protesting because Philando and because Alton Sterling had just been murdered. And so the Dallas protests were for Philando and Alton Sterling and the moment Um, um, those officers were killed, it took a sharp left turn. And um, I think the work of BLM in that moment was to keep the momentum for our movement. Um, And I think it was really important that we were able to say, this is our focus. Our folks are dying. We have to continue to pay attention to that. It's a tricky um, dynamic, I think, when you're constantly being blamed for harms against other people. And it's easy to fall into the trap of apologizing. And I think part of the work that we have to do is show up for what we know is true, which is black folks are dying the hands of law enforcement every single day. And just last year, a thousand people died at the hands of the police, almost doubled from the year before. We have to continue to have that conversation, even when it's in the spotlight and even when it's not.
2: Does that conversation shift or evolve when we are now in a dynamic of um, of the Black Identity Extremist Report? (laughs) All right, so for folks who don't know, but I imagine this is a room full of folks who do know, um, right, the FBI released a report called Black Identity Extremist. um, It's about black people that are, are doing work uh, and and <laughs> uh, and allegedly uh, or perceive that there is danger to their lives uh, by law enforcement. The whole report is filled with allegedly perceived, perhaps right. No no concrete admission, of course, that there's a war on Black life. Does
1: the conversation shift at all? It does. I mean, for, I want to just say a few things about that. W- number one is that the black identity extremist label is made up by the FBI. Didn't exist before the FBI created it. So that should make everybody feel mad suspect. <laughs> We're not out here with like black identity extremist hats and pens and t-shirts. I'm about to get a shirt though. <laughs> I know, I've seen the pens. But it happened after the FBI created it. Uh, and I just think that's important, right? They created a whole identity for black activists and black activism. Um, and two, that there's always been a long history of black people who have fought for our freedom that have been labeled as terrorists, who are uh, labeled as um, counterinsurgents. And I think with, the, with this black identity extremist label, we should see it in its historical context. And I think I'm, I'm curious about this moment because what we didn't have in the height of COINTELPRO is elected officials challenging the CIA publicly, Uh, what we do have in this moment is some elected officials, specifically Congresswoman Karen Bass, who has taken it, uh, the charge to hold Attorney General Jeff Sessions accountable, the FBI director, and really take them to task about this identity. Um, And I think that's actually really important. Um, And I think that's really necessary to have that conversation. Trump. Um, this idea of black identity extremists in particular within the
2: age of Trump and the war on dissent that he's waging, right? How does our organizing shift? Does it shift?
1: Yes, it does. And no, it doesn't. Um, I think what's important is for us to understand that there's a long-haul fight. Um, This particular moment, while we have to be responsive, um, we also can't get... um, too wrapped up in reaction. Uh, I think what's been brilliant about the last four and a half years is that we haven't gone anywhere. um, And the work has been ever more clear. I I think the other piece is sometimes we get um, really caught up in sort of the national landscape when there's so much local work to be doing, um, when there's such a rich local fight. um, in my opinion and what we've seen historically is the local really impacts the national. Um, and if we can stay on the ground locally, if we could do that work, we can change the face of this country. we can look at... Um, <laughs> we can look at decriminalization, we can look at gay marriage, right? State by state, city by city, county by county. Um, and eventually it spreads like wildfire across the country. So, um, my, you know, my advice to organizers is always try to stay as local-focused as possible with the clarity of a national and global lens.
2: Under the Obama administration, we saw a lot of reforms mm-hmm. uh, take place. We saw the, the Blue Ribbon Commission being formed. We saw body cameras. We saw um, the co-optation of the term community policing. <laughs> we saw um, people talking about diversity in police departments. Can policing, from your perspective, be reformed?
1: No. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm following your lead facilitator. Um, <laughs> So yeah, flat out no. And um, I'm an abolitionist, a staunch abolitionist. Um, What does that mean for you? I was just gonna give that definition. (laughs) Um, So abolition is not just the getting rid of something. Um, It's also the um, imagining of something else, the building of something else. And so abolition has a long history in this country. Uh, the abolition of slavery. Uh, slavery was never really abolished. We could talk about the 13th Amendment. And uh, um, policing, the court systems, uh, jails and prisons, surveillance, is all in the prison police apparatus. And I believe that that should no longer exist. I think if we have uh, policing, prisons, court surveillance, uh, in any form or fashion, black people will always be um, suffering from it. We will always be um, uh, bearing the brunt of those agencies. And so the work, I I believe, is to abolish and uh, abolish these systems. Um, And then the other part of the work is to build institutions that are really uh, the foundation around transformative justice, um, community accountability, um, and a deep desire for black folks to have our dignity to be cared for in the ways that we deserve to be cared for. So this time, especially, I think we should be calling for abolition. Um, Under 45, it's easy because so much of what he's doing is egregious for us to sort of just to be like, all right, if we just get this, right, if we just get these small reforms, uh, it's easy to sort of fill the the whole of grief that we feel collectively uh, because of this regime. But I think in these moments when it's even it's heightened, right, um, that we should be calling for abolition, um, that we should be naming it, we should feel unapologetic in naming it, and we should be um, creating our local movements to mirror what abolition could look like locally. Part of what that looks like, I think, is um, requesting and demanding that we Divest from law enforcement. <laughs> I know that um, APTP and, and many Bay Area groups have made a call for um, divestment from Oakland uh, OPD. I know that in Los Angeles we've made a call to uh, divest from LAPD. And what we what we've seen is that in all of the social service budgets, and it's a tragedy that law enforcement is called a social service, um, but in all the social service budgets. Um, Law enforcement is the budget that's always increased. It's always um, given the most money, it's the most resourced. And everything else, um, access to employment, access to healthy food, access to adequate public education is um, divested from. And so we need to flip that. Uh, And we have to be courageous enough to call for that and our elected officials who are often backing law enforcement have to show up and say okay we cannot allow this to happen anymore.
0: We'll hear more from Patrice Colors in a few moments on Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like to find out more about this week's show, check out our website at radioproject.org. Sign up for our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Now back to Patrice Kahn Colors, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter on making contact. One of the things people might not
2: know about you um, that I love and adore about you is your commitment to healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a question. Uh, my sister, mm-hmm. our people are feeling besieged by the real and psychological assault on our body and space. How can we respond and keep our sanity?
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, I love that question. I knew you would. Yeah, so important. Well, a few things. I mean, I really deeply believe that a part of black people's reparations package should be a therapist. Each one of us. I'm gonna say it enough that when we decide to go back to the reparations conversation, it's gonna be like point one. And if you don't believe in talk therapy, some sort of healing modality, you know, something um, that you have access to on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. Um, I'm a firm believer in therapy. I've been in it since I was 21 years old. Um, And I deeply believe in um, community as a source of healing, Uh, being with friends, family, loved ones, uh, spending a lot of time laughing. Uh, I deeply believe in, courageous conversations, you know, as part of um, how we heal. Uh, It's never fun to have funkiness towards other folks um, and your movement. So I think that's another part of healing. And then there's like all the other things. I'm in California now, so y'all will get it. I was in other places, they were like, what? I like crystals and sage and... (laughs) (laughs) I build lots of altars everywhere I go. You know, but but, when, but how does a girl from the hood end
2: up playing with crystals and saints? I was always like
1: I was always hella weird though. Like I was just the weird one. Trust and believe. I would come out. My mom be like, "Oh, that's what you're wearing today." I had a you know a deep inspiration for me around spirit was Harriet Tubman. The earliest memories of reading about her was her visions that she would have, and I was like, "Ooh, I I like see I I." there's something in that that feels like it pulls me. Um, so I always was like very clear about um, spirit. And you know, I, in the book I talk about, I grew up Jehovah's Witness and that was definitely not the religion that I wanted to be in as a child. It was very confusing. I didn't understand how the world had just been here for 2000 years. It, well, and it, you were like,
2: what do you call it, exile? I wasn't, my mother Your, your mother was, was
1: exiled. Multiple times. Because um, she
2: had your brother at? Because she had children out of wedlock. Which means that she could go to the church,
1: but she couldn't talk to anybody. And people could not talk to her. And if they did, she had to tell them, I'm disfellowshipped. And they would say, okay, and back up. She was like a leper. It was very traumatic, actually, as a child. So I was like, why would I want to be a part of this? (laughs) Uh, That don't make no sense. Um, But I was, like, trying to find... I knew knew that I believed in spirit. Um, And, like, you know, no shade to the atheists in the house. Um, I knew I believed in spirit, and I wanted... I wanted, um, what I loved about the Kingdom Hall was connection to something bigger than me, something um, broader than me being in community. And so I really longed for that and eventually would find my spiritual home.
2: Got a couple of questions with the same theme. So I'm gonna go there, um, particularly about the work between um, the Latinx community and the black community. I'm blending y'all's questions mm-hmm. together. Um, and dealing with anti-blackness in Latinx community.
1: How do we deal with it? And then move forward as mm-hmm. allies. Yeah, well, you know, I've, this is a good question and I've, I've, I've answered a bit of this uh, on the tour, which is like, how do we build relationships with each other? Um, sometimes we think that the way we build the relationships with each other is like, do a project together, start a campaign together, which is true, um, that's a good way. Doing work together is a good way to um, be in relationship to one another. But there's this all this time in between um, where we should be breaking bread together. Um, we should be hanging out together. We should be getting to know each other. We should get to know our pet peeves. I mean, there's a way in which um, I deeply desire our work to feel like we're building family um, and not just pounding to the concrete and doing work. Uh, because... That's when I know that someone has my back. Um, I know when someone has my back because you've seen me ugly cry. You know, you've hung out with me and my baby. Um, um, You've seen me vulnerable, not just on stage. There's a way in which um, I think we prioritize campaigns that are gonna bring us together. And we've seen that that's, you know, what's love got to do with it? Like we have to actually be building foundations with one another.
2: The other thing that folks might not know about you is that you are an, an accomplished artist yeah. and have been an artist most of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, the role of art in the liberation movement?
1: It's everything. <laughs> um, black people are creative people. Uh, I think we uh, are deeply connected to uh, creativity and art, and so it, it weaves throughout everything that we do and every movement that we're a part of. Um, and I, and I, you know, I often, some of the best artists that I've met are organizers. Um, and when I first joined the movement, I was 17 years old, and I remember um, you know, one of my mentors saying to me, you gotta choose it's either gonna be this organizing or art. And I was like, nope. (laughs) We're about to do both of these things. Uh, And I'm so grateful that I was stubborn in that way. um, And that I said, no, because I knew that I needed both. I needed both to fill. I couldn't be someone that was just in a conservatory and did art all day or theater all day. I would be very bored. Um, And I'm not someone that just could be like strictly policy campaign work. I think it is important that we marry those things. Um, and art and cultural work um, also gives us more space to feel and imagine um, how our world can be different. Sometimes when you get stuck in the rut of campaign and policy, you can't be imaginative. Um, and I think art allows us to be imaginative.
2: There's this big push uh, right now to, to go to the polls. It's like sort of the knee-jerk mm-hmm. reaction mm-hmm. To, to Trump. Um, BLM and uh,
1: electoral politics, Mm -hmm. yes, no? Sure, Um, and that's not gonna get us free. Say more. Well, okay, so it's a few things. Um, For me, it's all about strategy. Um, And for folks who've read Marx, it's time, place and condition, right? What's the time, what's the place, what's the condition? The charge to for electoral power is, an, I think it's an important charge. Um, I don't think it's a charge that we should be neglectful of um, or not insert ourselves in. But if we steer ourselves, you know, the whole ship in that direction, we're gonna lose a lot. Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, no, only the only good elected official is the elected official that is following the base, is following the people. Um, and what I, what I argue is that um, the right right now are being really good elected officials to their base. Mm. They are showing up for their base, and the Democratic Party, that is supposed to be, we're supposed to be their base, has completely neglected us and have neglected us for a very long time. And so (laughs) the conversation of electoral politics and where they're at right now, I think is a fine place to start, but we actually need to go further. And the further is we should be questioning why we live in a country that only has two parties. (laughs) And we should be challenging ourselves in this moment to think about what it would look like to have more than two parties. What would it look like to have a party that's actually invested in black people, and poor people, and workers. And so that's what I get curious about. Right now is an interesting moment. I'm not one of those people that's gonna like sit and do a lot of criticizing of it. I think it's a good start. We need a multi-pronged strategy in order to like get to what
0: we need and what we deserve. And that'll do it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to KPFA for hosting and recording this conversation featuring Patrice Colors. If you're still trying to wrap your head around the idea of the United States government criminalizing activism, visit our website at radioproject.org. Subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making This show was produced by Anita Johnson. Lisa Rudman is our executive director. Producers are Marie Chet, Monica Lopez, and RJ Lazada. Audience Engagement Director, Sabine Bladzen. Development Associate, Vera Kolsker, And I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.